Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex work and drug abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Before the summer of 1993, Benedict Canyon was a quiet Los Angeles neighborhood. Sure, it was home to several celebrities, so it was subjected to the occasional paparazzi lurking about, but there'd rarely been anything like this before. Now there were news crews camped in the streets. Helicopters flew above. Looky-loos drove by trying to catch a peek. The commotion was all due to one mansion, where 27-year-old Heidi Fleiss, the infamous Hollywood madam, resided. Alone inside her house, Heidi wished they would all just go away. She'd sought the spotlight her entire life, but now that she was the most talked-about woman in town, she found the glare overly harsh and terrifying. The phone rang. Heidi grabbed it, only to slam down the receiver. For months now, the press had been trying to get her to spill the details about her escort service. They wanted to know who her celebrity clients were, what weird sexual fetishes they had, and exactly how much she'd made from the whole thing. Heidi considered spilling all the dirty details. After all, none of her clients had tried to help her. Why should she protect their secrets? Not to mention, there was a tempting offer on the table for her exclusive expose. If she talked, it would be to the tune of one million dollars. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. This is our second episode on Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Last week, we saw how Heidi transformed from a life of petty crime to a role as a high-class call girl. Then we detailed how she left her madam behind and launched her own escort ring. This week, we'll discuss how Heidi recruited over 500 women and expanded her clientele across the globe. Then we'll explore how a mix of ego and addiction led to her eventual downfall. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. 
Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In 1989, the Los Angeles call girl scene changed drastically. For the last two decades, Alex Adams had reigned over the underground market, running a veritable escort empire. But when Alex was charged with pandering, 23-year-old Heidi Fleiss had two options. She could lay low and wait for her former mentor to deal with her legal problems, or she could strike out on her own. Heidi went with option number two. She got a hold of Alex's little black book and started calling up every man listed within. It didn't take long to convince Alex's clients to switch over to Heidi's services. Once she'd taken Alex's old clients, Heidi decided on a new way of conducting business. The first thing she changed was the sex worker's rate. Heidi charged clients a base fee of $1,500, which was a 50% increase from Madame Alex's standard price. But that was just on the cheap end. If men wanted Heidi's girls to travel or do anything kink-wise that was outside of the norm, it would cost them extra. Surprisingly, clients agreed to Heidi's hiked-up prices. They could go somewhere else for a discount, but no one could compete with the escorts Heidi was offering. Her girls were top of the line. Heidi staked her reputation on it. She personally scouted for young women at Los Angeles nightclubs and lured them in with the promise of excessive riches. In reality, it was Heidi who was minting money. To compensate herself for her troubles, she took a 40% cut of her girl's earnings. Due to the higher fees, Heidi's take was even more than Madame Alex's had been. But since the girls were going home with more money too, nobody was complaining. Heidi also changed the way sex workers were expected to deal with clients. She told her girls that when they engaged with a John, they were in charge. If they ever felt uncomfortable or unsafe, Heidi empowered them to leave, promising that she trusted their judgment. And she meant it. Unlike Alex, many claimed that Heidi considered her girls friends. She wanted them to trust her as much as her clients did. To better engender a sense of camaraderie, Heidi often invited them to her home. Sometimes she even paid for nights out on the town. As a result, most of the women loved Heidi, so they went above and beyond for her. The third and final pivot from Alex's way of doing things involved Heidi herself. She had witnessed how her old madam kept a low profile and remained behind the scenes. That just wasn't how Heidi was wired. She wanted to be seen. She was young, attractive, fun, and men loved her. Why shouldn't they see her out on the town? She figured that her good time party persona could only serve as a positive, helping her to drum up more business. So Heidi made it her mission to be seen. On any given night of the week, she was partying at local hotspots, talking up potential clients. Pretty soon, everyone who was anyone knew who Heidi Fleiss was. Before we continue with Heidi's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to psychologist Dr. Dara Greenwood, the need to be seen and valued on a large scale often looks like a vacuous desire for fame. However, Heidi didn't want to be famous in the traditional sense. 
She didn't covet being on magazine covers or starring in movies. She may have wanted something far more subtle that usually came with fame. Heidi was looking for acceptance. Like others who have a strong desire to belong, it's possible she believed that running with the celebrity crowd came with the promise of lifelong social inclusion. This theory seemed to prove true. As the new Hollywood madam, powerful and well-known men constantly called Heidi up and invited her places. They seemed to depend on her, and that was addictive. Heidi liked being wanted, but she loved being needed even more. As the weeks progressed, more and more people turned to Heidi to fulfill their sexual desires. She took down each new client's contact information, and soon her little black book was full. Heidi took it as a sign that she needed to expand her business. While the majority of her work remained in Los Angeles, Heidi started sending call girls all over the world. On any given night, she might have escorts working on three different continents. All of them were molded into Heidi's image of the perfect woman. In describing her ideal girl, Heidi said, I want a guy to know that she was born and raised in Beverly Hills, stepped off the cover of Seventeen magazine, but she's going to be the nastiest girl on the planet. Her criteria might have been superficial and extreme, but it worked. Heidi's clients ran the gamut. There were Hollywood studio executives, rock stars, foreign royals, politicians, Anyone with money was fair game, and they were all willing to shell out the big bucks for the best. By 1992, 26-year-old Heidi had so much cash, she didn't know what to do with it. She couldn't deposit the money into a bank because it was earned illegally, and she wasn't paying taxes on it. So she decided to buy a house. But that posed its own problems. She couldn't put the purchase in her name, as that would send up red flags to the IRS. Instead, she enlisted her father's help. Paul Fleiss supposedly had no idea what his daughter was doing to earn all her money. He still thought she was in real estate. It's unclear what logic Heidi used to convince him that there was nothing shady about him purchasing her house. Perhaps it was simply a case of him not wanting to know the truth. Therefore, he never asked the hard questions. He simply took Heidi's cash and bought the house in his name. And just like that, Heidi became the proud owner of a sprawling $1.6 million Benedict Canyon mansion. Her neighbors included Jay Leno and Bruce Springsteen. As far as Heidi was concerned, she had made it. In 1992, 26-year-old Heidi was so confident in her business prowess that she decided to expand into other areas of the nightlife industry. She and her friend, 27-year-old Victoria Sellers, had gone to the popular club On The Rocks for years. Since Victoria's stepfather owned the joint, it was easy enough to convince him to let them begin hosting three nights a week. Every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday, the doors would open. Only the elite few who made it on the list were allowed inside. This meant the club was filled with the likes of Billy Idol and Charlie Sheen. Outside the exclusive party, lines of the unchosen masses stretched around the block. 
Every face down the queue betrayed a desperate longing, and Heidi got off on it. She adored being the one who decided who was in and who was out. Heidi had control over the after parties, too. Often the festivities started at On the Rocks and finished at her house. Therefore, it wasn't uncommon to see celebrities like Mick Jagger, Jack Nicholson, and Prince carrying on back at her place. To service her elite guests, Heidi always ensured there were party favors available. More specifically, there were plenty of beautiful women and illegal drugs to go around. When the lines or the pills came to a stop in front of Heidi, she never held herself back from participating in the festivities. You see, although Heidi was living a new, high-flying life, friends report that she was still engaging in her old, destructive habits. In fact, the money made things worse. Now Heidi had thousands of dollars to pour into quaaludes and cocaine. Unfortunately, all the drugs made her blind to the enemies in her ranks. And soon, Heidi's oversight would threaten the business she'd worked so hard to build. Up next, Heidi pisses off the wrong people. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now, back to the story. Nineteen ninety-two was the best and worst of times for twenty-six-year-old Heidi Fleiss. She had celebrity friends, a brand new mansion, and her business was growing exponentially. However, simultaneous with all this good fortune, Heidi's drug use was getting worse. But she was able to ignore the warning signs because a big part of her job was partying and cozying up to potential new clients. Maybe Heidi even told herself that all her drugging was just good business. The justification for continuing her vices in her downtime, however, was much thinner. Heidi started indulging at home as well as at work. Cocaine wasn't the only bad habit she had trouble shaking. Even though Heidi and small-time director Ivan Nodge had broken up in 1989, she still used him as a bookkeeper. In addition to those duties, Ivan, a profligate gambler, encouraged Heidi to place huge bets at the racetracks. Soon, she was spending more than she was making. On its face, it seems bizarre that Heidi would have a platonic relationship with Ivan, given his past physical abuse. However, according to a paper published in the Journal of Family Violence, many women who experience abuse return to their abusers because they optimistically believe the problem is solved. When they make this decision, though, they ignore the warning signs. That leaves them blind and unprepared for a re-emergence of the problem. 
Unfortunately, Ivan didn't start hitting Heidi again. However, he did want to hurt her. Heidi thought they were friends, but in reality, Ivan wanted to ruin her. He was allegedly angry that she hadn't included him in her business the same way Madame Alex had. He wanted his cut, and when Heidi declined to even offer a taste of her new riches, Ivan turned vengeful. Secretly, he began to lure some of her girls to his side. He tried to turn them against their madam and get them to inform on her to the LAPD. While he wasn't successful at convincing them to snitch, many girls did start to feed him information. Distracted by her work and addictions, Heidi had no idea that there were rumblings of dissent within her camp. And unfortunately, Ivan wasn't the only one after Heidi. Madame Alex was furious with her old assistant for betraying her, so when someone broke into her home and stole her jewels, she fingered Heidi as the culprit. The cops didn't think much of it, but LA Times reporter Sean Hubler was intrigued. Certain Heidi wouldn't give her a quote, Hubler called her up anyway. Much to the journalist's surprise, Heidi invited her to her mansion. In early December 1992, Hubler drove up the winding road to 26-year-old Heidi's Benedict Canyon home. As the two women sat down in the den, escorts flitted in and out of rooms. Ignoring the walking, incriminating evidence behind her, Heidi adamantly denied the robbery charges. She didn't need some old crone's jewelry, she said. And then, perhaps to get back at Alex, Heidi bragged about her business acumen, stating, What took her years to build, I built in one. It's just hard for Madame Alex to accept the fact that her ship has sunk and she's been forced out. With that magnificent quote in hand, Hubler nearly ran back to her computer to get started on the story. The article dropped in the LA Times on December 14, 1992, with Heidi's quote prominently featured. Her words had immediate consequences. Heidi already had people who wanted to see her taken down, but with one interview, she unknowingly provoked the ire of the authorities. The morning the piece came out, LAPD's head of administrative vice held up the paper and addressed his fellow officers. He informed them that Heidi had admitted to a felony in the article, practically bragging about getting away with solicitation. It was like she was taunting them. The head of vice planned to put her in her place immediately. As for Heidi, she had no idea that a target had been drawn on her back. She still thought she was above reproach, untouchable. Little did she know, the LAPD started putting together a sting operation as quickly as they could. Meanwhile, Heidi continued expanding her business. In 1993, just two years after starting her escort ring, 27-year-old Heidi employed over 500 sex workers. She flew her call girls everywhere from London to Monte Carlo. She even sent a few to fundraising events for Bill Clinton. Recruiting was a thing of the past. Heidi was so famous that women came to her for a chance to work. 
All this meant that Heidi was making bank. On an average week, she took home 300,000 tax-free dollars, or a little over half a million dollars in today's value. And yet, despite her enormous income, Heidi's spending on drugs and gambling made the cash disappear faster than she could replenish it. Her plummeting balance made her desperate. Soon, Heidi was doing things she'd never even considered. First, she started overcharging clients. When they refused to pay, she taped their phone calls, and she was even involved in blackmail schemes. It wasn't only clients she was abusing. Some associates have suggested that Heidi started taking her problems out on her girls. She demanded they loan her money for drugs, and if they didn't agree or were even hesitant, she'd drop them from her roster. In a town where your reputation meant everything, Heidi was starting to slip. Still, there was one place where Heidi took extra precautions. She may have been foolhardy in her interview with the LA Times, but she was protective of her operation. She didn't want any undercover cops weaseling their way into a room with one of her girls. She made sure never to take on a new client unless they'd been referred by a current one. This made it difficult for the LAPD to get their foot in the door. It took the police four months before undercover detective Sammy Lee finally managed to get an introduction. On April 6, 1993, Lee met with Heidi in Beverly Hills. Heidi believed that he was a wealthy Japanese businessman named Nico Akai. After quick introductions, Lee asked Heidi to arrange for some escorts to join clients of his who would be in town later that summer. Heidi was more than happy to accommodate. Foreign clients always paid well. Careful not to spook the madam, Detective Lee and his fellow officers did indeed wait until the summer before contacting her again. Then in June, Lee called and asked her to meet him at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. That was a red flag for Heidi. The Beverly Hilton was a cheaper establishment than she was used to dealing with when it came to foreign businessmen, but she told herself they could be renting out a whole floor. When she got there, she saw what she assumed was a fax with Chinese writing on it, so she decided everything was fine. Fully buying into his cover story, Heidi met Detective Lee in his hotel room. As they got to talking, Lee asked for marijuana. He wanted to see what other crimes he could get Heidi to incriminate herself in. However, Heidi read the request as yet another red flag. In her experience, high-class businessmen didn't ask for weed, but she dismissed this warning sign as well. Instead of leaving the room entirely, Heidi merely refused to provide the requested drugs. Lee gamely let it go. He switched tactics, deciding to prod Heidi for information instead. It didn't take much. With a little nudge, Lee got Heidi to start bragging about how much she charged, how great her girls were, and how she was the best madam in town. The bragging acted as an icebreaker, making Heidi comfortable enough to get down to business. She asked Lee what type of woman he was looking for. After Lee gave her a couple specifications, Heidi scheduled for one of her escorts to arrive at the hotel in a couple of hours. 
When the time came, Lee met with the sex worker and paid her the $1,500 base fee. However, when the woman undressed, Lee called the evening off. Since he paid the sex worker regardless, she likely saw no reason to inform her madam. The next day, on June 9th, Lee called Heidi again. He told her that his colleagues would be joining him that night, so he wanted three more girls and two eight balls of cocaine. This time, Heidi agreed to provide the drugs. Coincidentally, Heidi also got a call that day from Charlie Sheen. He too wanted her to get him some cocaine. Then another client called and asked for quaaludes. Heidi agreed to help both clients out. She was already getting drugs for Lee, so she figured she might as well. Still, Heidi had an uneasy feeling. She couldn't put her finger on it, but something was off. Unable to shake the anxiety, she popped a muscle relaxer to calm down and went outside to lounge by her pool. Meanwhile, at the Beverly Hilton, the police sting was underway. Three officers, including Detective Lee, posed as Japanese businessmen. They got the escorts to verbally agree to sex and oral sex. Then, as the girls began to strip, the LAPD task force burst into the room. They arrested all four women. It didn't take long for the sex workers to turn on Heidi. Lately, she'd been treating them horribly, and their loyalty had been shattered. So they told the authorities what they knew. Sitting out by her pool under the night sky, Heidi had no idea what was happening just a few miles away. She felt calmer than she had all day and was just about to go get ready for her evening when suddenly... She heard the sound of cars screeching to a stop outside, and then a police officer on a megaphone demanded she let them in. When she did, 20 cops waited on the other side. With no other real options, Heidi allowed them inside. Officers searched her home as the canine unit sniffed for drugs. After the dogs located the cocaine she had left in the backseat of her car, the cops seized and bagged a total of 13 grams. In addition to the narcotics, the police found the holy grail of evidence, Heidi's black books filled with client information. They also found traveler's checks signed by Charlie Sheen that Heidi hadn't cashed yet. With that, they had her. There was no wriggling out of it for Heidi. Authorities charged the 27-year-old with pimping, pandering, and possession of narcotics. Then the police handcuffed her and took her down to the jailhouse. Despite the dire circumstances, Heidi stayed calm. She had powerful people in her pocket, and they wouldn't let her take the fall. As far as Heidi was concerned, the cops didn't know what they had coming. Up next, Heidi fights for her freedom. And now, back to the story. In 1993, as 27-year-old Heidi Fleiss's drug and gambling addictions reached new levels, the LAPD closed in. After a six-month sting operation, they finally caught her. Heidi was charged with pandering, pimping, and cocaine possession. The judge set her bail at $100,000. 
two years prior that would have been chump change, but these days, Heidi lacked any cash reserves. All her disposable income had been spent on drugs and gambling, so she had to use a bail bondsman to get herself out. Then Heidi returned to her Benedict Canyon home to await trial. That's when the gossip began to spread around town. First, there was the news that Heidi Fleiss's operation had been busted. Then Charlie Sheen was outed as a client when the leaked police report revealed that one of his checks had been in Heidi's possession. The town was a buzz. Rumors spread that the cops had a list of all Heidi's clients. Hollywood was on edge, wondering who would be named next. The press erupted in a frenzy, desperate for any nugget of information they could get their hands on. But Heidi refused to engage, and the police kept the contents of her black book under wraps. This was possibly at her client's insistence. Her roster was filled with powerful men, both in Los Angeles and across the globe. So they wielded a lot of sway with the authorities. But even if the cops agreed to keep the information privileged, Heidi could change her mind at any time. Her clients began to sweat. After all, she was a notorious loose cannon. According to sociologist Julia O'Connell Davidson, one reason men turn to prostitution in the first place is to have complete control over women. But now it was clear. Heidi was the one with all the power, kind of. Heidi needed to get the charges dropped so she could go back to enjoying the life she had created. Unfortunately, she required money for a legal team, and she didn't have the cash. Since the cops had taken all of her taped blackmail material, she couldn't use that to compel one of her clients to pay her bills either. So Heidi was stuck turning to her friends, one of whom lent her $15,000. With that, Heidi found attorney Anthony Brooklier. He quickly got to work crafting her defense. Brooklier's strategy was simple. He drew attention to Heidi's powerful male clients. Then he asked the district attorney why they were allowed to walk free while Heidi was charged. After all, both parties were guilty of a crime. Brooklier thought that applying pressure on the DA would shame him into publicly wavering about whether to charge the men involved. He believed that the resulting fear of being exposed would then cause Heidi's high-profile clients to ask the DA to grant her leniency. His plan was genius. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out. The DA refused to charge any of Heidi's clients, and as a result, no one came to her aid. She pleaded not guilty to charges of pandering and narcotics possession, and her trial moved forward. And Heidi's troubles didn't end there. The government was set on burying her. On July 28, 1994, a federal grand jury indicted Heidi for income tax evasion. They also charged her father, Dr. Paul Fleiss. Heidi had deposited her money into his bank account, and he had signed the deed for her house and her car, thoroughly implicating him in her crimes. Heidi hadn't regretted any part of her sex work business, but she did feel bad about getting her dad involved. She never meant to hurt him. 
Despite her fast escalating troubles, Heidi remained upbeat about her situation. While preparations were going on for her two simultaneous trials, she launched a boutique clothing line called Heidi Wear. In addition, she kept up her social life, with friends coming in and out of her home at all hours. Heidi also started talking to the press, teasing that she might drop more client names. Although Heidi dangled this bait for attention, she remained discreet. Even when the press offered to pay her $1 million for an exclusive tell-all, she never revealed her clientele. But that didn't mean she stopped talking to the media about everything else. She even agreed to a profile in Vanity Fair. It seemed Heidi hadn't learned her lesson. Her first interview with the LA Times had put her services on the LAPD's radar, and yet Heidi was doing it again, bragging about her success to the press even as she awaited trial. According to psychologist Maria Konnikova, overconfidence can lead criminals to partake in excessive self-congratulations, which tends to backfire on them. That's exactly what happened to Heidi. She felt like she had everything under control, and so long as that was the case, why wouldn't she brag? She'd pulled off something spectacular. And like always, she wanted to keep all eyes on her. On November 4, 1994, 28-year-old Heidi strutted into the Los Angeles courtroom wearing a low-cut mini-dress and big sunglasses. She claimed it was the most conservative attire she owned. She looked and acted every bit the party girl she had always been. She smiled for the cameras, joked with reporters. Then she assumed her seat by her lawyers, and the real show began. During the trial, the prosecution called Charlie Sheen to testify. He admitted to being one of Heidi's clients and told the jury he had spent $53,000 a year on her girls. Heidi later claimed it was much more than that. Throughout the proceedings, Heidi never denied what she had done. She never voiced any regret for it either. It was what it was. Perhaps due to her laissez-faire attitude towards her crimes and her attention-seeking antics in the courtroom, the jury found Heidi guilty on three counts of pandering. Fortunately for Heidi, they found her not guilty for cocaine possession. However, less than two weeks later, five of the jurors admitted to misconduct. Heidi's defense team quickly filed for a new trial. Unfortunately, their initial efforts weren't enough. On May 25, 1995, a judge sentenced 29-year-old Heidi to three years in prison for pandering. Heidi barely had time to take in the verdict when, just one month later, her tax evasion trial began. That case lasted for a month and a half and resulted in another conviction. Her dad was also found guilty on one count of conspiring to defraud. His punishment included a $50,000 fine, 625 hours of community service, and three years probation. Heidi's guilt consumed her. Her father's reputation was ruined, and it was all her fault. The only silver lining was that at least he stayed out of prison. 
In January 1997, after years of stressful trials and appeals, the sentencing on 31-year-old Heidi's federal tax fraud conviction was finally at hand. On the last day of the hearing, Heidi formally expressed her regret for her crimes. It had been over three years since the police had arrested her at her Hollywood home, and she claimed that she now saw the error of her ways. Perhaps this was because Heidi had learned the consequences of her past performances of nonchalance. She knew that exhibiting remorse might make the judge more lenient. The verdict seemed to prove her theory right. Heidi was sentenced to 37 months in prison for tax evasion and money laundering. Her prison sentence was significant, but nowhere near the eight-year maximum she could have received. In addition, and as a result of a new plea deal with prosecutors, Heidi was allowed to serve both her sentences for pandering and tax fraud concurrently. Heidi carried out her prison term in Dublin, California, and remained there for 20 months before being released on good behavior to a halfway house. She soon proved that despite what she might have claimed during her final days in court, she didn't feel remorseful about anything she had done. She simply regretted that she got caught. This became clear in 2005, when 39-year-old Heidi moved to Nevada and eventually got involved with brothel owner Dennis Hoff. She helped him run his business for years until he passed away. In the mid-2000s, she also set out to make her own mark in Nevada. In her mind, however, she lacked any marketable skills to take up a respectable job. Plus, that just wouldn't be any fun. So Heidi turned to what she knew best. This time, however, she wanted to mix it up. She decided that she wanted to open a stud farm. The idea was to create a brothel with male sex workers where women could come and spend their money. Loath to get tangled up with the law again, Heidi made sure to keep everything on the up and up. She signed the permits and filed all the forms. Then she found a plot of land an hour outside of Vegas in a county where sex work was allowed. It was only after she'd satisfied all these legal requirements that Heidi let the town know that she was back in business. Unfortunately, no one else seemed as psyched as Heidi was about her idea. In fact, people seemed offended by the idea. One local bar owner led a petition to ban Heidi's stud farm. Even the brothel association refused to accept Heidi's application. It seemed as though nobody liked the idea of male sex workers. Eventually, Heidi gave up on the entire venture. Without any sort of income, she just couldn't afford to keep fighting. After giving up on her stud farm, Heidi's life took an odd turn. She had no friends in town except for a bedridden ex-madam who happened to live next door. The woman owned a large collection of exotic birds, and every day Heidi would go visit. At first she was there to keep the woman company, but as time went on, Heidi grew attached to the birds. She loved them, and she felt comfortable and connected with them in a way she never had with people. 
When the madam passed away, Heidi took the parrots under her wing. She decided to use her stud farm land for an aviary refuge instead. She had nearly 50 birds, and she wanted to give them the space to spread their wings. In truth, Heidi would have done anything to make her birds happy. They loved her unconditionally. She was the center of their world. And that was all Heidi had ever really wanted. Undivided attention. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Heidi Fleiss, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Vanity Fair profile Heidi Does Hollywood by Lynn Hirschberg, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 